Good morning and welcome to our worship gathering. It's good to be with you on this Lord's Day once again. We have been looking at the promises Jesus made to his distressed disciples in the upper room during the Last Supper. They were distressed because he had pointed to his death, departure, and return to heavenly glory with his Father. And and for these men around the table, the supper table, the thought of losing Jesus' physical presence was just too much for them to bear. The Lord had supplied all their physical, emotional, and spiritual needs for about a three-year period. As a result, the disciples loved him deeply and couldn't imagine life without their beloved teacher. Knowing what they were thinking, what they were experiencing emotionally, Jesus spent much of his last night comforting and encouraging them. And this morning, we're going to look at the ninth and final promise. And it is the promise of double peace. Please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 14, and we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 31. John chapter 14, verses 27 through 31. And I'll pick it up at verse 27. Looks like most of you have turned there. Jesus continues saying to them, this is an undisturbed narrative. He just kept talking to them during this supper time. And here's what he says next. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now what we see here, the first thing we want to note, is the promise of double peace. Now I call it double peace because the peace Jesus promised here in this verse features two types of peace. Firstly, it features judicial peace. And I would pause to say that this is the most important kind of peace uh, for us. In fact, if we don't have judicial peace, we're not going to have any other sort of peace at all. Or we might obtain the world's version of peace, which isn't peace at all. So the first thing we see, or the first thing we need to note is judicial peace, and it is of the highest importance. And it has to do with being at peace with God. It has to do with being at peace with God. You must understand how essential this is. I mean, human beings are literally in a perilous situation. You know, I, I would, you know, I'm not naive. I, I, I think that I understand that most people fail to realize this. Most people do not see themselves as being in a perilous situation, but they most definitely are. And the reason for this is because of sin and spiritual death. Human beings are, by nature, alienated from God because of spiritual death, because of sin, and they are also, something that they might not agree with, but it's absolutely true, they are also hostile enemies who war against God, Colossians 1.21. They war against God through their sin, whether they recognize the warfare or not. And because of this alienation because of spiritual death and sin because of this this sort of warfare against God through sin because of this the wrath of God is upon humanity upon human beings Romans 118 
And yet when Jesus died on the cross, he made peace with God, not only a possibility, as some would suggest, but a reality for all who believe. His atonement alone, his bloody sacrifice, satisfied the justice and wrath of God. And if we believe in his person and work, we are justified. That means to be declared right. And we are now at peace with God. In other words, we are experiencing judicial peace. Romans 5.1 puts it like this, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. The Apostle Paul is pointing to judicial peace, the most important type of peace uh, to us. And yet those who do not believe are not at peace with God and are still under his wrath and judgment. Now it would be hard for you to, maybe it's hard for some of you to, to accept the reality of of people that aren't in Christ being under the wrath of God because of what churches are doing today and, and all they ever talk about is the love of God and all they ever talk about is the grace of God and all that. And you'd, you'd kind of get the idea that God is not an angry God or God is not a holy God or God is not a perfect God. God is not a righteous God. He's just all loving. And ministers and churches that are preaching that attribute of God, the love of God only, are doing a great disservice not only to the Scripture but to their hearers. God is a just God. God is a holy God. God is a righteous God. God is a wrathful God. And human beings, fallen human beings, are at enmity with God. In fact, Jesus referred to those who are not in him as children of the devil. And we know, according to Scripture, the devil is, is like Jesus' nemesis, and so we need to make no mistake, and we need to not be ignorant here. Those who are not in Christ are enemies of God, and the wrath of God and the judgment of God is upon them. Now, now it might be hard for them to accept that because life is going well for them. But at some point, the teeny little spider web that suspends them over the mouth of hell will break, and they will experience the full blast and wrath of God. And this is why we preach the gospel. We want to see people come to Christ by grace through faith so that they can avoid this, have the abundant life, have hope, everything else that we pack into the blessings of the gospel. So again, those who do not believe in Christ, who are not trusting in his merit, in his finished work, are not at peace with God. They are not. And I don't care how many good deeds they do. It doesn't matter how many good deeds they do. It doesn't matter um, all of the nice things that they do or how well they play the game of religion or whatever. It, it makes no difference. None of those things can put them into a mode of peace with God. Only the blood of Jesus can do that. And by grace through faith, they accept the blood sacrifice of Christ. And then they are put at peace with God, but none of the merit or anything else works. It doesn't work. The scripture says this so clearly. I like the way that Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorites, put it. He said that there can be no peace between you and Christ while there is peace between you and sin. Now, I think he just you know, hit the nail on the head with that statement. 
So again, judicial peace has to do with being at peace with God because of what Jesus did for us at the cross. Think of it like this. At the cross, Jesus paid our sin debt. Yes, yes. Every human being has a great debt of sin. The sins they've committed against God have created a deficit, a debt, something that is owed to God because he is holy and he demands perfection. Every sin equals a debt to him. And guess what? We cannot pay that debt. No amount of good deeds or anything else that we could do will will, um, have enough value altogether to actually pay for this debt. The only thing that paid for this debt, that had the value, that qualified, that was acceptable, is the blood of Christ. So at the cross, Jesus paid our sin debt through his bloody sacrifice. His blood made that atonement and paid that debt. And at the cross, he absorbed our wrath. The wrath that befell Jesus on the cross was beyond human comprehension. But it wasn't because Jesus sinned that wrath came upon him. It was because you and I sinned that wrath came upon him. He bore our sins and he bore our wrath. The wrath that he experienced, the torment, the separation from God, just the, the lethality of it, it's because of us. It's because he was absorbing our wrath. And not only that, at the cross, he satisfied God's justice. Why? So that we who believe could be reconciled to God. So that we who believe could be justified and set right by God. So that we who believe could have peace with God. So that's the first type of peace, judicial peace. It's the most essential. It is the starting point. And in a sense, what Jesus is saying, peace I leave you My peace I give to you. What he's telling them is that in in a few moments when I go to the cross, I'm going to secure peace between you and God through my work, through my sacrifice, through my atonement, through my death. This is what he's telling them. You see, they're sitting here weeping and crying and mourning and, 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 and they're spiritually and emotionally tormented by losing him, but it's so necessary that they lose him for this moment because... He has to go and die to get their peace, to get their reconciliation, to make that atonement for them so that they can have peace and be forgiven and all those things. They don't understand this part of the gospel yet. And that's why they're mixed up and sad. Man, if they'd understood the gospel, what would they have been doing? They wouldn't have been crying over this. They would have been saying, what do we need to do to get to the cross a little sooner? Second, it features experiential peace. Experiential peace is peace that we experience on a regular basis. I would just refer to it as the daily peace of the Christian. The daily peace of the Christian. The Apostle Paul called it the peace of God which surpasses or transcends, goes beyond all understanding and guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 7. That's the experiential peace. It's a peace that that goes beyond our understanding. And I think what he means by that is that in the midst of great suffering and and difficulty and trial, and maybe it be personal sickness or a tragic loss, maybe you've lost a loved one, and in the midst of all of that, 
and you're a believer, somehow you had this peace about you. It's a peace that can't be explained, but you had this peace about you. Now, now that's not to say that, that you weren't emotionally hurting or sad over the situation or that you weren't suffering. That's all there. But, but somehow in the midst of all of that, you had this peace. And, and later when you look back at that scenario, you say, I, I don't know how it was possible. I just had this peace about me when Susie passed away or when this happened. It's kind of, you just kind of can't explain it, right? Well, that's the peace that's unexplainable. That's the peace that transcends understanding. And that is the experiential daily peace of God that Jesus promises here. I like how MacArthur put it. He said, at the individual level, this peace, unknown to the unsaved, secures composure in difficult trouble. And that's what I've just been alluding to or talking about. It dissolves fear and rules in the hearts of God's people to maintain harmony. Look at that. He identifies it as three things or three things that it accomplishes. What? It composure in difficult trouble. That's, that, that's, that's how you have peace during the midst of difficult circumstances. And you can't really explain that later on. And it, it dissolves fear. You know, you might be racked with fear over a situation. And then that experiential peace kind of comes in or you realize it's there and that fear begins to dissipate or dissolve. And then also he points out the fact that it rules in the hearts of God's people to maintain harmony. You know, God puts a huge premium on unity in the church and, and this experiential peace that Jesus is promising to the disciples, we have that and that's what helps to maintain unity among the brethren. That's what helps us keep our, keep our head and keep our, keep our emotions together when, when, when maybe another brother or sister sort of assails us, you know, with, with some kind of foolishness. And that happens, you know, we're in relationships with one another and sometimes we hurt each other, we do stupid things. But, but this, this experiential peace in those moments will kind of guard our hearts and, and, and kind of prevent us or help us not to lose our cool or to... to, to avenge ourselves in that moment, you know, to, to, to seek retribution. It keeps us calm, cool, and collected. It gives us a, a sort of thick skin so that we can not add fuel to the fire and try to maintain unity and maybe try to reason with that person who has an issue and who's assailing us or has a problem. Now, like some of the other promises in chapter 14 of John here, the Helper, the Holy Spirit is the one who manifests the promise of experiential peace in the lives of God's people. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, this is a peace I'm going to give to you, but it's going to come on Pentecost with the Holy Spirit, just as the promise of my, my spiritual presence will come through the Holy Spirit then. And the fact is, is experiential peace, what we're looking at now, it is actually a fruit of the Holy Spirit. How many of you are familiar with the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5? Let me just read verses 22 to 23 to you real quick, and, and you'll see it here. Paul wrote this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and what? Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And he says, against such things there is no law. So, so if we have the Holy Spirit, we're in Christ and we have the Holy Spirit, these fruits of the Holy Spirit will be in us, including experiential peace. Okay? 
So this is something that's not only promised here in this text, but it's something that we have already obtained if we are possessed by the Holy Spirit. It's already in us. The fruit of experiential peace is in us. And we must do our very best to remember that it's there, to live in accordance with it, and to walk in it. Now, another thing to note is that the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ is literally characterized by this same experiential peace. This was prophesied in the Old Testament in, in many, many places. I'll read some of them to you. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 says, Now, this is in reference to Jesus the Messiah. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of what? Yeah, Prince of Peace. And then, and then it says, Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. So this is a, a prophecy that was made 700 years before the birth of Jesus about the nature of who He is, right? Wonderful Counselor, um, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This, this is, by nature, this is who the Messiah Jesus Christ is. He is all of those titles. And then it even describes the kingdom, the government that He will establish and the peace that will be established, and the fact that the peace of this kingdom will have no end. Now, if we shift forward a little bit to Isaiah 54, 13, it says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. That's an interesting facet of this peace, of this experiential peace. It's not just that all of the adults you know, experience this peace. It's something that will be experienced in the kingdom of Christ with the children. And I think this is huge because if you're a parent and you have children, especially little children, you pray for peace in your household at times, don't you? Man, when, when kids are little, they, they pulverize each other and they ransack the house and they destroy their rooms and they do all of this stuff. And sometimes we wonder if, they, if they're possessed, right? It just scares us. My kids were pretty good. I think it, they knew it's because, you know, I, I, I carry a big belt, you know. But for the most part, in, in, in this kingdom, even little children will experience this peace. In other words, you're not going to have little siblings punching each other in the nose. It's going to be amazing. Now, if we look at Ezekiel 37, 26, there's another verse or prophecy that characterizes the, the kingdom of Christ. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. Now, I think this, this covenant of peace is part of the new covenant which Christ, you know, which Christ brought and purchased and ratified through his own blood. Basically, what Ezekiel is saying here through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that this kingdom will be a kingdom of peace because God has covenanted it to be so. He has ordained for it to be so. And then maybe over in Haggai 2.9, it says this, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, he's referencing the messianic kingdom, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So there's a handful of prophetic Old Testament verses that present the kingdom of Jesus Christ as a kingdom of peace that is experienced from adult to child, that is covenantal, 
that is eternal, everlasting, forever and ever, and so on and so forth. Now, here's where it gets very interesting. When Jesus told his disciples here in John 14, verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. He was announcing that he is the Prince of Peace who will fulfill these prophecies and establish this kingdom of peace. This is what I love about Scripture. This is what I love about the words of Jesus. Sometimes he just utters a salutation or makes a statement like this, but there is a deep spiritual meaning behind it. There are spiritual implications behind it. So when he says, I'm leaving you peace, he's not just saying, hey, I'm going to give you guys peace. I know you need it. Look at you. You guys are emotional basket cases. You're distraught over this situation. I'm going to give you peace. That'll help you out. He's not just saying that. He's also saying, look, guys, I am the Prince of Peace. And I have modeled this to you. And the kingdom that I am establishing now before your very eyes is a kingdom of peace. These things that these Old Testament prophets spoke about, they spoke about me. I'm the Prince of Peace. And this kingdom will be my kingdom and I've come to establish it. Now here's where it gets really, really amazing. Did you know that after... The resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus greeted his disciples with a particular phrase. And I, and I don't see him doing this anywhere in the New Testament or in the Gospels prior to the resurrection. I only see it afterwards. And I only see it, as a matter of fact, in John, in the Gospel of John in chapter 20, and I see it in three verses, verse 19, verse 21, and 26. In all three instances there, when Jesus went to visit his disciples after the resurrection, when he went to interact with them, to show himself to them, to encourage them, to further equip and prepare them for the gospel ministry, the day of Pentecost and all that, he came to them and he greeted them with a particular, specific salutation. And I see it three times here in John 20. He said this, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Do you know why he said this? Do you know why he used this specific salutation? He said it to announce that these prophecies were now fulfilled in him and that the kingdom of peace had been inaugurated. Now, what that means is that the kingdom of peace is already here in a sense. Now, when Jesus returns the second advent, when he comes back, that's when he will consummate his kingdom. And that's where we will see it in its full effect. And that's where we will see this peace established far and wide. Because right now, yeah, the kingdom is here and it's happening now in a sense, but we still have war. We still have the opposite of peace. And that's essentially because we still have a world filled with sinners. Well, that's not what we'll have when Jesus returns to establish or to fully establish or to consummate and complete his kingdom. So Jesus tells his disciples just prior to his death and resurrection, I'm going to give you peace because I'm the prince of peace and I've come to establish a kingdom of peace. Those prophets were talking about me. And then right after his resurrection, he tells them, guess what? Done. It's complete. I fulfilled it. So really the trigger point here is the resurrection. It is the resurrection. Now, Jesus, by using this salutation, peace be with you, 
he was also, in a sense, teaching them, his disciples sitting around the table, he was teaching them to live as kingdom people. Hey, I'm bringing in the kingdom. Be prepared. Be ready to live as kingdom people. And how do kingdom people live? They live in peace with one another. So when he says, peace be with you, he's telling them, be kingdom people and live in peace. Live out this kingdom peace that I've come to establish or that I have established now that I will come and consummate. This is what he's saying to them. See how much meaning is packed into just a salutation. This is why you got to study the Word of God in context, and you got to be a detective. If not, you just see a salutation. You don't see the deeper implication. You don't see the deeper meaning. Now, it's important for us to note that peace is not the only thing that Jesus' kingdom is characterized by. Romans 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, I say this to you because we are post-Pentecost. We are post-cross and resurrection. If you're in Christ, you're a kingdom person. If you're in Christ, you have the double peace. You've got the judicial peace. You've got the experiential peace. Now, you need to live in this experiential peace, but you also need to be a righteous person. You also need to walk in the joy of the Holy Spirit. To be a kingdom person means to do all three, not just, you know, enjoy the experiential peace. You got to be about righteousness. You got to be about the joy of the Holy Spirit. I like what Michael Cannon Jr. wrote. He said this, if we want to know something of the flavor of the kingdom of God, if we want to know something experientially of the kingdom of God, then all of our ministries and all of our efforts and every word that comes from our mouth should be according to what? Those three things, right? Righteousness, peace, and joy. And he says, it should be that we are pursuing peace with one another and mutual upbuilding because those are the characteristics of the kingdom and of the kingdom people. And if they are not the characteristics of the ministries of a church, then the ministries of that church are not conducive to the building of the kingdom of God. Man, I love that. I love what he wrote there. Man, as a church and as, as a church that has ministries to people and stuff, man, we need to be about those three things. We need to be about righteousness. We need to be about peace. We need to be about joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what we are to focus on. That's what kingdom people are like. That's what kingdom people are like. That's what we should be like. Now, I also want you to notice how Jesus juxtaposed his peace with the peace of this world. He put it like this, not as the world gives do I give to you. And I think A.W. Pink's comment on that particular part of the verse is just stellar. Listen to what he wrote. He said, the peace the world gives is shallow, unstable, unsatisfying, and false. He said, the world talks much about peace but knows little of the thing itself. And he says, we have peace societies, peace programs, a peace palace. Now, I don't even know what he was referring to there, but in any case, a peace palace and a league of nations to promote peace. Yet all the great powers of the earth are armed to the teeth 
Isn't that true, right? The whole world wants peace, but it has to use a rifle to get it. That's the opposite of what Jesus is talking about here. He continues, the world's peace is chimera. Chimera is like a fire-breathing dragon. And he says, it fails under trial. When the world gives, it is to the ungodly, not to the godly, whom they hate. When the world gives, it gives away and has no longer. But Christ gives by bringing us into what is eternally his own. When Christ gives peace, he gives forever and never takes away. Man, I just think that is a phenomenal piece of work by Pink right there, describing the difference between what Christ gives and what the world gives. Christ gives real, everlasting peace, his own peace. The world says it gives peace, but it doesn't. And the fact of the matter is, with the world, peace is totally conditioned. Like the minute that you sin against the world, it wars against you and strips you of the very peace that it's allegedly gave to you. Well, with Christ, it's the opposite. Christ gives it, and it's permanent. There's a permanency here with the peace of Christ. And there's nothing permanent about the world. Nothing permanent about the world. This world's not even going to last. It's going to be consumed by fire and rebuilt. And lastly, notice Jesus' exhortation. He says, after he tells them about the peace that he's going to give them, that he's promised to them, he says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 14. How does this chapter begin? With the exact same statement, let not your hearts be troubled. So, so chapter 14 begins and ends with the exact same exhortation. Let not your hearts be troubled is the bookends of this phenomenal chapter. And here's the point. And I think this is the big point for us. If the disciples listened to Jesus and focused on the promises he made between these two bookends, right? Between these two statements, their anxiety would dissipate. Their fears would be quelled. Their hearts would no longer be troubled. That's the point of John 14. You've got this statement, let not your hearts be troubled, and then he gives a rationale for why they shall not be troubled. If you focus on these promises, they won't be. And at the very end, he says the same thing. I've given you all of these promises, and even the promise of double peace here. And so he wraps it up with the same statement, let not your hearts be troubled. You know, I think that one of the primary problems that we have as, as believers is just what we focus on. We tend to focus on our circumstances. We tend to focus on difficulty. We tend to focus on the sickness. We tend to focus on the financial deficit. We tend to focus on the relational issues and problems that are happening in our relationships. We tend to focus on the problems in our marriage. We tend to focus on the circumstances, on the issues rather than on the very promises of Jesus Christ, rather than on the promise of double peace. And this is a huge issue for us. When we focus on the circumstances, what's spinning out of control or whatever, of course we're filled with fear. Of course we're going to be filled with anxiety. Of course we're going to experience anxiousness. 
Of course we're not going to have peace. We're not going to be able to rest. And, and I don't know about you, but I've gotten myself so stressed out sometimes that I can't even sleep. And, and it really, at the end of the day, it has to do with what we're focused on, where we set our minds. There's, there's no scripture in the entire 66-book Bible, in our Protestant Bible, that says, fix your mind on things below. Fix your mind on your circumstances. Fix your mind on your troubles. Fix your mind on your relational difficulties. Fix your mind on that tragic loss of that loved one. There's nothing in Scripture that says fix your mind on those things. But Scripture says repeatedly, fix your mind on things that are above. And I'm here to tell you this morning that these promises here in John 14 are the things from above. They are divine, heavenly promises. That's what you're to fix your mind on. That's what you're to focus on. That's what you're to set your sight on. And I know it seems unrealistic to say it like this. I know it's hard, but it's what we must do. I know how ruling circumstances can be. I know how challenging they can be. I, I know how they can fog up our memories. I know how they can just, just clog us up to the point where, where we can't see or you know, understand anything else. They, it just, it's just crazy. I get it. I understand. I know I'm a human being like you. But in these moments of difficult circumstances, we must train ourselves to focus on that which is above and to even rejoice in our difficulty because somehow through it, God has a lesson for us. And somehow he's going to chip something away off of us that doesn't belong there. And he's going to sanctify us a little bit more and make us a little bit more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because that's the ultimate goal of our salvation. It's not just to go to heaven where there's golden streets and all these things. That's wonderful. It's not just about that. Salvation is about conforming us to the image of the one who saved us, Jesus Christ. That's what I long for, is to be like Jesus, not like Phil. I know Phil. You know, and I know, I know Christ died for Phil, but Christ died for Phil to make Phil like himself in righteousness, in holiness, in character, in my disposition, my attitudes. And at the resurrection, I will, be most, I will become most like Christ, and so will you. But in any case, don't settle for your circumstances. Fix your gaze upon that which is from above. And these promises are that which is from above, the promises of Christ. If we do that, if we do that in the midst of difficulty, if we do that, our anxiety will dissipate and our hearts will no longer be troubled. I'll tell you, I practiced this this last week because I've been sick on and off for five weeks. I haven't been able to shake this cold. The minute I feel like it's starting to go away, it comes back with a vengeance. And that's what happened on Monday night, this last Monday night right after the men's Bible study, it just felt like it came over me like a fog. And I started coughing and coughing and coughing violently, so much to the point where it made me nauseous. And this went on for three nights straight, three nights of very little, if any, sleep. And each night, when I lied in bed, I was laying, well, I was even in bed, I can't be in bed with my wife because then she doesn't sleep because I'm moving all over and snarfing and coughing. So I was on the couch, and the couch is not comfortable. But in any case... I'd be lying there, 
2, 3 in the morning, and I would remember, you know what? You're focused on your cough. You're focused on your circumstances. Focus on that which is above. Focus on the promises of Jesus Christ. Focus on his power and ability to heal you, even if it's temporary. And I would begin to pray to him, Lord, oh, help me. Help me, Lord, right now. Please help me get some rest. I've got some ministry things I've got to work on tomorrow, and uh, I'm already a basket case as it is, and, and not getting any sleep's not going to help. And help me, Lord, now, please. I beg of you, be merciful. Help me so I can press on tomorrow morning in the gospel ministry. And you know what? In just 10 minutes, that cough's gone, and, and I'm sleeping. I did this three nights in a row, and it worked three nights in a row. Just has to do with refocusing, getting off the circumstance, and getting on to the promises. Now let's move to 28, verse 28. Jesus continues, he says, You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now this was Jesus' way of saying to them, if you only believed what I've been saying to you, your cares and fears would vanish and joy would take the place of sorrow. This is what Jesus is saying. That's my paraphrase of part of that verse. You know, they, they weren't focused on the right thing. They were focused on the circumstances. And if they'd been focused on what he was saying, if they would have perceived his words and understood that facet of the gospel, his ascension and return, they would have rejoiced because Jesus was going back to the Father to, to, to receive back the glory that he set aside when he came to earth. But, you know, their circumstances blinded them from the truthful reality. And Jesus says, man, you guys are all sad and tore up. If you'd, man, if, if, if you would have just, you know, loved me rightly and understood what I've been saying to you, you would have rejoiced over this announcement instead of been so hurt by it. And he did say something that's a bit perplexing, but I've got an explanation. He said, if you loved me. Now, what did he mean by this? When, when I first look at that, it, it's as if the disciples did not love Jesus. It's like Jesus saying, look, if you guys don't love me at all, and if you did, you'd have, you'd have handled the situation differently. Well, that's not necessarily what he meant. He knew that they loved him. And what he said in verse 15 and 21 and verse 23 assumed it. It kind of shows that he understood they loved him. I think what he was seeking to do here is purify their love. I think he was seeking to purify it. Their love was not yet sufficiently disinterested in their own sorrow and bereavement. You know, in other words, their love, they had basically... Their love was impure because their love was kind of fixed on themselves. They had more of a self-love, right? And, and sadness and self-focus just means self-love. And so their love was, it wasn't pure because it wasn't placed entirely on Jesus. It was on them and then on them, on, on the way they felt and all that. If they had loved Jesus with a, a pure love, a real love, a deep love, they would have been happy at his exaltation and forgotten themselves, right? It's like self-love, man. That's what they were experiencing. They didn't want Jesus to leave because it hurt, and that shows the imbalance. They loved themselves more than they loved him, and Jesus simply exposes that here. Man, if you'd love me the right way, you'd rejoice instead of 
overly loving yourself and focusing on yourself and how you feel. That's what he tells them. Now, when Jesus said, I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I, he was not speaking of his essential nature as God, but of his submissive role during his ministry on earth. Now, there's a whole lot of little cult groups that call themselves Christian that have just spun this stuff out, man. They say that, look, Jesus himself said that he's not as great as the Father, which means he's not God. And then you've got the Holy Spirit who's not God, and he's even below Jesus. So they use Jesus' words here to establish some kind of hierarchy here where God is the only God, and he's at the top, and then you've got Jesus who isn't God, and then you've got the Holy Spirit who is even less than Jesus. And, and that's just pure heresy. That's just pure heresy. That's apostasy to say that. That's not at all what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is pointing to his submissive role that he took on when he came to earth. His statement reflected the perspective of a a humble servant, right? The role he had assumed during his earthly ministry. I like how R.C. Sproul put it. I think he brings a lot of clarity to Jesus' statement. Think of it like this, the Father is greater than the Son, not in substance, but greater in the economy of redemption. I think that hits the nail on the head. What Jesus is saying is that the Father sent me, I left heaven to become a human being to save you guys. The Father is the sender, which makes the Father in the economy of redemption greater than the one who is sent. That's what Jesus is trying to convey to them here. The Father is not greater in substance. The Father is God and co-eternal, and the Son is God and co-eternal, and the Holy Spirit is God and co-eternal. They're all equal in terms of their substance, but in the economy of redemption, there is a bit of a hierarchy. You've got the Father, who's the architect of salvation and the sender. You've got the Son, who comes, he's the sent one, he comes, right, and he comes to purchase the salvation, so he's lower than the Father in this economy, and then you've got the Holy Spirit, that, who is, in a sense, a little lower than the Son, he's the one who comes to regenerate God's people and bring that salvation to them. So, in that sense, there is a greater to lesser, but not in substance. That's what Jesus is saying, that's what he's trying to convey to them. And that's the truth. In terms of their personhood, they are exactly identical and and the same. In terms of the economy of redemption, the Father is at the top. Then you've got the Son. Then you've got the Holy Spirit. And I want you to note something right now that's very important. It's not part of this sermon. I didn't write it into my script. We think of Jesus, and rightfully so, as the Savior, right? I mean, the Scripture talks about how He's the Savior of the world. But we put the entire emphasis of saving and title of savior on jesus but i want you to know that the father is just as much a savior as jesus and that the holy spirit is just as much a savior as jesus all three are our savior okay remember the plan of salvation was the father's that makes him a savior he sends the son the son comes as our physical savior to die on the cross and the holy spirit comes to affect this salvation, to, to um, 
possess the people of God and bring this salvation, make it a reality in their lives, cause them to be born again and these sorts of things. He then is a savior as well. So when you think of the savior of Jesus Christ, you are correct. And when you think of the father as a savior and the Holy Spirit as a savior, you are correct. It is not wrong to think of the entire Godhead as our savior because we are literally saved by the entire Godhead, not one or the other. So think of it like that, okay? Now let's look at verses 29 through 31. 29 through 31. And Jesus continues, And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. And then he says this, Rise, let us go from here. Jesus tells the disciples he has been prophesying about his departure to build up their faith. He says, I have, I have been telling you these things so that you will know about them in advance. And the idea here is that when they look back, they'll say, oh man, he already warned us about that. He already told us about that. And at that moment, it's going to build up their faith because they're going to see him as one who gives prophecy, and not only does he give prophecy, but it's true prophecy. It's prophecy that is fulfilled, and that's going to bolster their faith in him as the Son of God. And then he reminds them that his time with them on earth is drawing to a close. I will no longer talk much with you. Here's how this would play out in a handful of hours. They will be in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus will be praying there, and the disciples will be told, to stay awake and alert, and then all of a sudden they're going to see torches appear coming up the trail, and then they're going to see Judas Iscariot, right, one of these disciples. They're going to see him leading a group of religious leaders and, and temple police. They're going to be coming up this trail with these torches, and they're going to enter into the garden, and what are they going to do? They're going to approach the Lord Jesus, and, and they're going to arrest Jesus and begin to take him away. And that's what they're going to see. That's what they're going to experience. They don't know that yet. Jesus knows it, but the disciples don't know it. But that's what they're going to see. And right here in this text, desiring that they understand the spiritual side of these events, Jesus points them to the ruler of this world and how he is coming. In other words, Jesus wants them to know that it's not just Judas, the religious leaders, and the temple police who were behind his arrest. He wants them to know that that is actually at a deeper level, at a spiritual level, that is the ruler of this world coming to do his work on Jesus. Now, who is the ruler of this world? That is the devil. Now, you need to understand the devil, of course, is not the legitimate ruler of the world. He is simply the divinely permitted usurper. He is the ruler of the evil world system that is in rebellion against God. Jesus is telling them, look, when you see those guys come to arrest me, that's the ruler, that's the devil coming for me. And the fact of the matter is, the devil was present in the Garden of Gethsemane at the arrest of Jesus. I know this to be true because of the simple fact that Judas Iscariot was possessed by the devil at this time. Scroll back to John chapter 13, verse 27. Judas is sitting at the supper table. He hasn't departed yet. He was part of of this supper, before the Lord instituted um, the Lord's Supper communion, Judas 
is possessed, literally possessed by the devil. Satan enters him. And then what? Jesus tells him, go do what you got to do. Judas leaves. He goes to the temple, Sanhedrin, wherever the religious leaders are. And he begins to act out his devilish plan. The devil was there in the garden and he was in Judas. Minimally, he was in Judas. I like what MacArthur said. Jesus saw Satan coming in the persons of Judas, the religious leaders, and the Roman soldiers, because they were there too, who would shortly arrest him in Gethsemane. So the devil was there when this arrest occurred. And, and Jesus is pointing out to the disciples, hey, he's coming for me. And that's when you're going to see it. Now, why was the devil there? Why was he still in Judas? Well, I think he was there in Judas and maybe in some of these religious leaders to ensure that his human instruments, because that's all these guys were, would fulfill his devilish plan, would follow through with it. You see, in the devil's mind, arresting and disposing of Jesus was his greatest triumph. He had a major problem with Jesus, and he figured, man, if I could just get rid of Jesus, hey, I've won. And yet in reality, eliminating Jesus was his greatest blunder. It resulted in his own defeat. When Jesus died on the cross, the head of the serpent, the devil, right? Genesis 3.15 was crushed. He was defeated spiritually. And so Jesus is just saying, look, there seems things are going to play out here. The devil, the ruler of this world is coming for me. But notice what Jesus says. He has no claim on me. What did Jesus mean by he has no claim on me? Well, the phrase is a Hebrew idiom, meaning that the devil could make no legal claim against Jesus. He could make no claim on him. I think that in our you know, modern language, we would probably say that the devil was coming for Jesus, but he had no dirt on Jesus. He didn't have anything on Jesus that he could grab a hold of to, to do anything to Jesus. And that's what Jesus is telling him. I like how D.A. Carson put it. He says, the devil could have a hold on Jesus only if there were a justifiable charge against Jesus. Since Jesus is not of this world, nor did he ever commit sin, the devil had no claim on him. Oh, I love that. That is so good. Now, let's just get a little theology behind sin and what it means and all that so that we can bring some real meaning to Jesus' statement here. The Bible defines sin as transgression against God's law or commandments. 1 John 3, 4. Sin is to break God's commandment. Now, the Bible also teaches very clearly that the wages of sin is death. Romans 6, 23. In other words... What does sin bring? It brings death. What will the sinner experience because of sin? Death. And then the Bible also teaches, again, something else unique here, that the devil holds the power of death over sinners. Hebrews 2.14. So, here we go. Since Jesus committed no transgressions against God's commandments, in other words, he never once broke any of God's commandments are sinned. He was therefore clear of all sin, and the devil, who holds the power of death over sinners, had no power over Jesus. So that is what Jesus is saying. Jesus 
made the simple statement, he has no claim on me. Why? Because I'm not a sinner. He has no claim on me because I'm not a sinner. He cannot hold me in death. Why? Because I am not a sinner. That's what Jesus is saying. He's got nothing on me. And I'll tell you what, the resurrection proves this point, doesn't it? It does. Jesus rose from the grave three days later. Why? Because he is without sin. If Jesus had been a sinner like you and I, he would have stayed in that grave. His body would have rotted like ours do. And Satan would have held him in death. He would have been under the power and control of Satan. So the resurrection proves the point that Jesus was no sinner that Jesus was without sin and that Satan had no power of death over him. In verse 31a, Jesus literally points to why the ruler of this world, the devil, has no claim on him. He says, but I do as the Father has commanded me. This simple statement summarizes the perfect obedience and righteousness of Jesus. He basically says, the devil has no claim on me because I do what the Father has commanded. I've obeyed all his commandments. Therefore, he has no power over me. Therefore, he can't hold me in death. Therefore, he can't, he can't do anything with me. He has no power. All the devil could do to Jesus is accuse him of this or that. That's all he could do. All he could do is hurl and sling accusations at Jesus because he didn't have any dirt on Jesus. Now, we see this during Jesus' mock trial in that kangaroo court at night, right? During his trial in front of the high priest and the religious leaders, we see one satanic witness after another come forward and hurl false accusations against Jesus. Well, I saw him with his shoes on the wrong feet. I mean, they were just like literally, they didn't say that, but they were literally making stuff up about him. Why? Because they were controlled by Satan and had no dirt on Jesus. They had, nobody had ever seen Jesus sin. And so they had to make up things about him when they went to try him. All the devil can do is hurl accusations against Jesus because there's no dirt to be had on Jesus. He's perfect. He's righteous. He's holy. He did precisely what he was supposed to do. He did what the first Adam was supposed to do and yet failed to do. The second Adam triumphed. The second Adam triumphed, Jesus. Now, this is something very important to note. The imputation or giving or transfer of Jesus' righteousness to our account is why the devil has no power or claim over Jesus' people, you and I. Did you know that? Did you know that because of by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, you're clothed in his righteousness. It's like you're wearing his righteous robe. And the way that God sees you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus when he looks upon you. He doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your former nature of any of that. He sees the righteousness of Christ. And because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, because we have been eternally declared or justified as right by the highest authority ever, God himself, all the devil can ever do against us is hurl accusations. That's all he's got. 
even though we still wrestle with sin, when he goes before the Father to claim, look at what Phil did. The Father doesn't look upon me and see the sin that I committed. He sees the righteous robe of Christ wrapped around me, and he says, not guilty, devil. So when the devil comes and hurls his statements against us, they are nothing more than accusations because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, which we are clothed in. Isn't that wonderful? All the devil can do against us is accuse us of this or that, but none of it sticks because we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, if you are not by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you don't have his righteousness, and what the devil says of you is not an accusation, it's truth. It's truth, because you're still in your sins, and when the Father looks upon you, he sees a sinner, he sees an adversary. You need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ and be clothed in that righteousness so that the devil no longer has any power over you, and that the truth that he speaks about you becomes nothing more than an accusation, because the Father is unwilling to accept the devil's testimony, because you are now clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is why the devil is called the accuser of the brethren in Revelation 12.10. Earlier, Jesus told his disciples that the essential test of love is obedience. Right? He's taught that to them like three times in this text. In verse 15, verse 21, and verse 23, he put it like this. If you love me, you will obey me. And this is such an important truth. You know, true love for Jesus produces obedience or manifests itself through obedience. If we say we love Jesus, then, then that love for him is going to be proved or shown through obedience to his commands. And in this day and age, in many, many church circles, God forbid here, but it happens there are those in our midst who, who say they love Jesus and they are habitually doing the opposite of what he's commanded. They live out their sinful pleasures, their sinful desires. They justify those things while at the same time claiming to love Jesus. That's a terrible situation. In verse 31b, Jesus tells them, that he will demonstrate his love for the Father by doing exactly as the Father commanded him. In other words, he will show that he loves the Father through obedience to the Father's commands. What is the Father's command that he's referencing here? It has to do with going to the cross and dying on the cross for Jesus' bride, for the sheep, for the elect. And so what Jesus is telling his disciples here is that, look, I have told you three times tonight that if you love me, you'll obey me. And now I'm going to set the example for you. I'm going to show you what love through obedience looks like. I will model it for you. I love the Father, and I will prove it to you, and I will prove it to the entire world through going to the cross and fulfilling the commandments that he has commanded that I do. That's what Jesus is saying. And lastly, 
the phrase, rise, let us go from here, obviously signals a transition in the narrative. At this point, Jesus and the disciples evidently left the upper room and began walking through Jerusalem, headed for Gethsemane. And while they walked, Jesus continued his teaching. Lord willing, hopefully next Sunday we'll come back together and we'll begin to look at more of those teachings that he gave them while on the way to Gethsemane. As we move into John chapter 15. Closing. If you are a believer and you've become discouraged because of your circumstances, let not your heart be troubled. Fix your attention on the promises of John chapter 14. We identified nine of them. And in my humble opinion, they are by far some of the greatest promises in all of Scripture. If you're a believer and you become discouraged because of your circumstances, fix your attention on the promise of double peace here in verses 27 through 31. The peace of God is yours. And it will guard and protect you in Christ Jesus when life gets rough and tough. It will help cause you to make lemonade when life hands you lemons. Do not let your circumstances cloud your understanding of what Christ has promised and given you. Do not let your circumstances disturb your peace. Don't let your circumstances disrupt your peace. I like the story that Harry Ironside tells. I think it's helpful. He said, at the end of the Civil War, the Federal Cavalry were riding on a road between Richmond and Washington. Suddenly, from out of the bushes came a Confederate soldier. He was ragged and starving, and he called out to the captain of the Union Cavalry. The soldier approached, essentially surrendering to the captain, and he said, I'm starving to death. Do you have any food? The Union captain was perplexed, and he said, Why don't you just go to Richmond and eat? Why don't you go there and get what you need? Confederate soldier explained to him, I can't because I'll be arrested. Three weeks ago, I deserted from the army, and if I'm caught, I'll be shot as a deserter. The Union captain asked him, Well, haven't you heard the news? The war is over. Peace was made two weeks ago. The Confederacy is ended, and there's no longer a conflict between us. And the Confederate soldier looked at him in amazement, and he said, What? I've been starving and, and hiding for two weeks just because I didn't know it. You see, peace was available to that Confederate soldier, but he failed to realize it at first, and this prolonged his suffering. 
Jesus has bequeathed to us a great legacy of peace. Has blinding circumstances, unbelief, rebellion, vice, hatred, ignorance, you know, willful sins kept us from his peace? Know this. Jesus gave himself on our behalf and took upon himself the wrath of the Father against us. If we trust Jesus for this substitutionary work, if we believe that he lived for our righteousness, that he died for our sins, that he was buried to settle our accounts, that he rose from the grave three days later, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell for us, we will have judicial peace with God. And we will have experiential peace for each day. Amen.